I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today, my guest is James Rom, who teaches classics at Bard College and has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on ancient Olympia and the games and the other things besides games that took place there. It's a review of Olympia, a cultural history by Judith Barringer. Hello, James, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. So I suppose to begin, we should um, say where where is or where was Olympia? Olympia is a... Um, site in the northwest of the Peloponnese, the big peninsula in the south of what is today Greece. So it was uh, part of the Dorian world, as far as the Greeks were concerned, the ethnic region that was dominated by Sparta and other cities that identified as, as Dorian. So it was dominated by Sparta, but it was not. it's not that close to Sparta, is it? It's sort of equidistant, closer to Sparta than to Athens, but far enough away to have its own identity? Yes, it's far from Sparta, but was politically under the influence of Sparta, as was all the Peloponnese. It was closest to a city called Elis, E-L-I-S, which is not nearly as familiar a place as Sparta, but um, Elis was largely in charge of running the games at Olympia because of its proximity. And the site itself, that there's the, the stadium, the stadion and the Temple of Zeus and other temples around, because it, it's not, it wasn't a town exactly, was it? It was a religious centre. Yes. It had a, a sacred enclosure at its centre called the Altis, which included the venues for athletic competition, but also religious sites like the Temple of Zeus and a huge altar called the Ash Altar, which is composed of the uh, sort of mound of the ashes of sacrificed animals. Then outside that enclosure, which was very carefully delineated, were lodging spaces, the council house for the body that governed the games, that administered the games, and other sort of administrative buildings. But it was not a polis in the classic sense. It was not a city-state, did not have walls, uh, did not have a sort of large permanent population, didn't have a theater, the kind of attributes that you find in in other city-states. So it was more of a pilgrimage site, if you like, than a a city. And the games, as you say in the piece, they officially started in the year that we call 776 B.C., a few years before the mythical founding of Rome. Um, And those first games, is this right? They sort of consisted of a single 200-metre running race, which was won by a man called Coribus of of Elis. Is that historical fact or or legend? I think it's probably a legend. We do have lists of Olympic victors that are inscribed on stone 
that go back an awfully long way, but they don't go back that far. So anything from the early, early years, the 8th century BC, is probably legendary. Presumably, they started even before 776. There must have been some kind of competition and some kind of religious shrine at Olympia because the two institutions were very closely connected, athletic games and religious worship, uh, especially the worship of Zeus at Olympia. The uh, The importance of the date, uh, 776, is that the Greeks used Olympiads, the four-year periods uh, between Olympic uh, festivals, as their method of dating historical events. They didn't have numbered years the way that we do. So instead of saying that something took place in uh, 442 BC, they would date it to the 130th Olympiad. That wasn't the right math, but you, you get the idea. <laughs> <laughs> so so imagine, if we imagine that we were Athenian citizens in 442 BC, or the 130th or whatever Olympiad it would have been, and the four yearly games are coming up, would people, how many, as it were, who, I suppose the question is, who were the audience? Did people go from all over Greece to watch the games and would sort of more or less regular Athenian citizens, although if they're citizens, they're already not quite regular, have, have gone? And what would they have found when they, when they got there? So, yes, Athenians and Greeks from cities all across the Greek world would come to Olympia in the four year, for the four year festivals. It was, the gathering place of the entire Greek elite every four years. There were other festivals at other sites that took place in the off years. So there was a cycle of four and those who were really well off or who were athletically inclined might go to all four. But Olympia was certainly the queen of the games and uh, attracted the most attendance. So if the, the elites from all over the Hellenic world would have been meeting there, they presumed they had a, there was a political purpose to all of this. It wasn't just about fun and games and entertainment. It was about, it was a way to meet with the leaders of other cities. And I mean, it was, was there much of that kind of political diplomatic activity on the, on the sidelines? Yes, certainly so. The, chance to um, have face-to-face -face conferences with the uh, diplomats from other cities, with the leading citizens of other cities, was um, something that uh, the Greeks were very much aware of. Alexander the Great made uh, one of his principal policy announcements at the Olympic Games of 324, um, so that the entire Greek leadership would hear it all at the same time. And uh, negotiations took place in, at that same Olympiad about how to deal with certain demands that Alexander was making on the Greeks. So we know that uh, politics took place behind the scenes. And the, the modern Olympic Charter um, says that the goal of Olympism is to place sport at the service of the harmonious development of humankind with a view to promoting a peaceful society concerned with the preservation of human dignity. Was there a similar aim behind the ancient games or is that very much a, a 19th century sort of take on it? 
I think that's a bit of an idealization, but the Greeks did see Olympia as an opportunity for a truce among rivalrous city-states. There was a policy called the Ekekaria, the staying of hands, so that no hostilities could take place during the time of the festival. A bronze discus was set up at the entrance to Olympia, uh, proclaiming the start of the truce. And uh, as far as we know, the games went on even in times of all-out war between city-states, the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta, which was a disastrous world war of the Greeks, didn't stop the Olympic Games. It's quite remarkable. So, so, so during the Peloponnesian War, did was was there a temporary truce during the festival? And Athens and Sparta sent athletes to Olympia, who who would have competed against each other, as far as we know. Yes, that that certainly happened. I I don't know that there was a total staying of hostilities elsewhere in Greece during that time. I think probably there was routine violations of the truce in regions away from Olympia. But uh, at the Games itself, cities that were at war with each other were able to compete peacefully. Now, there was one big exception to the Eke Korea, and um, I discussed that in my recent book, The Sacred Band, uh, when... um, the two city-states that were competing for control of the games and were also at war with each other actually fought a battle in the Shrine of Olympia during the festival. So at one moment, the spectators were watching athletic contests and cheering for one side to win over the other. And the next minute, they were watching a battle uh, and cheering for one side to win over the other. And when the festival wasn't taking place, for, so for most of the time, it was still, it was a shrine. It was an important religious center with an important shrine to Zeus. So what else went on when the games weren't going on? Were there pilgrims? And... That's a good question. We don't have a lot of information from outside the time of the festival, but the Temple of Zeus at Olympia was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The statue of Zeus by Phidias that occupied the center of the shrine a magnificent figure of a seated Zeus holding a figure of victory in the palm of one of his hands uh, was world famous as a masterwork of ancient sculpture. So presumably it would have had visitors and celebrants at all times. Maybe we can talk a bit about that that statue because I sort of foolishly, I guess, imagined it to have been carved from a single piece of marble, but it wasn't, was it? Because in the piece you talk about the wooden structure underneath it. And so how how big was it and how would it have been constructed? Oh, it was quite big. Uh, I don't have the precise dimensions, but it would have reached nearly up to the uh, ceiling of the temple and would have dwarfed visitors as they walked in and encountered it face to face. Uh, Yes, it was built on a wooden frame with ivory and gold plating the the wooden uh, structure. Uh, So no, a single block of marble could never have have been carved in in that dimension. But um, the effect on visitors was striking. We have coins that show what the statue looked like, but it itself has perished. It was taken to Constantinople 
in uh, the early Middle Ages, and it perished in a fire. So it survived for 2,000 years. I mean, you talk about this in the piece, and I, so and um, Judith Barringer in her book, that there was a pool of oil in front of it, which might have been part of a complex, a lubrication system for the wooden structure, but also had reflected the statue in it. So it had a, a practical as well as a, an aesthetic purpose. Apparently so. It was important to keep the oil lubricated. I'm sorry, to keep the wood lubricated so that it wouldn't split or swell or warp. And the runoff went into a pool that stood before the statue and reflected the light coming in from the translucent marble ceiling of the temple. The um, sculptures from the pediments, the two spaces above the front and rear of the temple, those triangular spaces, are very well preserved. They're, they're damaged, but for 5th century Greek sculpture, they're fairly well preserved. And you can see them arranged as they were on the original structure in the Museum of Olympia. They're not on the temple itself, which has tumbled to the ground long ago, but uh, they've been reconstructed to the degree that we can. And one of them seems to show the chariot race of Pelops uh, in mythical times. So one of the events that was associated with the mythical founding of the games. And it's an event that was, according to one legend, won by cheating. And according to another, it was won fairly. So the question is, which legend does the sculpture depict? And uh, Judith Berenger has very intelligently argued that it was the honorable version of the victory that's shown there. And I think that makes complete sense. In a setting like that, you would never show an example of cheating. That would be peculiar. But there are, there were rather, because all, they've all been lost now, but there were statues of, of cheaters, weren't there? That people who, there's this kind of slightly sort of surprising to us punishment for if you were caught cheating at the Games. I mean, you, I can't, you can't imagine that no one going to the Olympics in Paris in 2024, there won't be a giant poster of, of Ben Johnson, for example, on the way to the stadium as a, as a reminder to people not to, not to cheat. So what, were there, what was the punishment for people who were caught cheating? You were assessed a fine, and that fine was used to pay for a small bronze statue of Zeus, and the statue was erected on a marble pediment just outside the arena so that people would see it as they went in to compete and your name was inscribed on the pediment so forever you were branded as a cheater and the money that you had to pay was immortalized in the form of the statue and those going into the arena would be reminded of the cost of cheating nowadays you you you'd more it's more likely that you would see the, the names of previous winners supposedly to inspire you. So were the names of winners carved anywhere as well? Well, yes. The, the uh, victor lists that I mentioned are um, widely known in the Greek world. Uh, I think there were multiple copies. I'm sure that they, there was one displayed at Olympia. Also, the uh, victors were awarded an olive crown, which uh, it's not gold or silver as our medals are, but it was thought to be clipped from the holy 
olive trees brought by Heracles himself to the, Olympi to the site of Olympia from the land of the Hyperboreans, a kind of mythical paradise in the far north. So this was a magical object. Also, victors in the games were entitled to free meals and lodging at the Prigeneon, at the, the most uh, luxurious inn, or, or B&B, as we might say, uh, at the site of Olympia whenever they were passing through. And that story about Heracles bringing the, the olive trees from the, from the Hyperboreans, so was the, the myth in, in ancient Greece that the games had been founded by Heracles? If our myth begins in 776, did their myth begin with Heracles, the son of Zeus? Well, um, he was not uh, specifically associated with athletic competition, but of course his labors all involved feats of strength, wrestling giants and monsters and uh, using physical force to subdue his enemies. And the labors of Heracles, the 12 labors, were portrayed on the Temple of Zeus at Olympia. So those receiving the crowns would have associated themselves with Heracles. And the number of, I was going to say sports, but I was say sports, the number of events at the games increased over the years. Is that right? The presumed, you know, they may have begun with this single one run around the stadium. And then they moved on to chariot racing and discus throwing and javelin throwing and and would a, a statue like um, Myron's Discobolus, the discus thrower, would that have been associated with Olympia or would the the athletes it depicted have been an Olympic athlete? I don't know that we have a identity for the Discobolus, whether it depicts a, an individual or just a type. Uh, there was a prohibition or a, a general sense that depicting individuals in life, in statues, was taboo. That is, you only depict gods and heroes, mythical heroes. So we have monuments to athletes and memorials, but um, individual statues was a, a riskier matter, at least in classical times. Later on, it became more acceptable. We, we have also um, coins, you know, the victors of the games were often... Um, political rulers, or at least rulers like to sponsor chariots and horse teams uh, or, or uh, racing horses at the games, because those were expensive and showy items that demonstrated great power and wealth. So, for instance, uh, Dionysius, the tyrant of Syracuse, uh, sponsored a winning chariot team, and thereafter put chariot teams on his coins with a figure of Nike, the goddess of victory, awarding a crown to the charioteer. Now, it's not clear that it's that exact chariot or that Dionysius himself is the one being crowned, but obviously the association is there. And, and earlier you mentioned Alexander, Alexander the Great making a important policy statements at the Games. And his father, Philip of Macedon, that you Philip II of Macedon, who you mentioned in the piece, also that the, the games were important to him as well, to, for it to establish himself as a Greek. That's right, because the Olympic Games were only open to Greeks and Macedonians 
although their ruling elite claimed to be Greek, other Greeks were not so sure. So when one of Philip and Alexander's ancestors, Alexander I, tried to enter the games in the uh, early 6th century BC, the judges told him he was not allowed because he didn't have enough Greek lineage. And he then demonstrated to them, or perhaps bribed them, and got the decision changed so that he could enter. But thereafter, the Greeks were not convinced that the Macedonians were part of their ethnic group. So when Philip entered chariots and horses in the games and won, this was a source of great pride to him, and he also put those on his coins. They very much, I mean, that doubt that the other Greeks had as to whether or not the Macedonians were really um, were really Greek enough to take part. That was com those were those doubts were completely pushed aside by by Philip and Alexander. Yes, as were uh, their political role. Uh, I mean, they became the sovereigns of the Greek world, and therefore the Greeks had to accept them as members of their fraternity. And how is that on display at Olympia? So Philip built a monument or a um, a shrine, really, to his own family called the Philippeion. It's a remarkable structure because it's circular with very graceful ionic columns. And in the center was a set of statues depicting Philip, Alexander, their parents, and uh, Olympia, uh, Olympias, Philip's wife, in the attitude or the uh, position that would be occupied by the statues of gods in a shrine, in a true shrine. So this structure, which is unique for its time, seems to have blended attributes of, of human rulership with uh, that of the gods, and to suggest that maybe Philip and Alexander were more than mortal. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. With the expansion of the Roman Empire and when Olympia became part of the Roman Empire, a, a subject realm of the Roman Empire, but the games continued through through the Roman era. Who competed in them then? Did, did Romans compete there, or was it still a, a Greek festival? It was still largely a Greek festival. The, the Romans were not as keen on athletic competition as the Greeks were, but some emperors, especially Philhellenic emperors, those who styled themselves after Greek rulers would enter chariot teams or racing horses in the games. And uh, also there were statues and memorials to the Roman Caesars erected at Olympia because this was the most important propaganda venue for the entire Greek world. Everyone who was anyone would see your statue and your your monument once every four years. And they 
overhauled the engineering there as well, didn't they? They brought in aqueducts and that they Romanized it. Yes, to a certain extent. Yes, brought in water supply, uh, built lodging houses and eateries, so as to make it more comfortable to stay there. The um, Greeks didn't mind camping rough, but uh, the Romans liked to have soft beds and a, a nice hot meal. So the amount of space given to food and lodging increased dramatically under the Romans. It made it less Spartan. Yes. Um, until eventually the Romans, just like you say in the piece, the Roman emperor Theodosius put a stop to the games at around 400 AD because he was a Christian and they were too pagan. That's right. Yes, they were part of an effort to put all non-Christian ritual in the past. And, um, of course, the worship of Zeus was uh, not uh, acceptable under the, the Christianized Roman Empire. Would it, did it continue on the quiet, as it were? Well, Judy, Judy Berenger supposes that it did. We don't really have any evidence, but we know that the site continued to be inhabited by Christians. Uh, following Theodosius's edict, and uh, there were some uh, small improvements made or restorations made to the site during the early Middle Ages. So it did not become extinct. We assume that some competition took place there, but we have no records. And so, would that even have been that? Would the Temple of Zeus have been converted into a church, or is that fanciful? Well, that's what happened with the Parthenon in Athens. Um, I don't know that we have evidence that that happened at Olympia. The site was much less populous, and it was off the beaten track, so it didn't attract the kind of visitors that um, that other shrines did. So it's possible that it, it didn't undergo that kind of Christianization. And eventually... Because it wasn't built, it wasn't built over and turned into a, a modern city. So it it was re I mean, it, as it were, disappeared under the fields to be rediscovered in the eighteenth century. Is that right, or was, or was it? Would... It did disappear. It it tumbled to the ground because of earthquakes and silted over from the action of uh, the rivers that that run through it. And uh, there was almost nothing visible there when. Uh, 18th century visitors first stumbled across it. At the same sort of time then that Pompeii was being discovered and then not long afterwards that, that Mycenae and Troy and, and Knossos and, and all, that, all that unearthing of the... Pompeii was a good deal earlier. That was already in the late uh, 16th century. Uh, but yes, it's a, it part of the sort of golden age that... Uh, also unveiled Mycenae and Knossos and some of the great uh, Bronze Age sites. And so what we know about it now is from archaeology, and you've talked about coins as well, and, and obviously there are tablets and there are other written sources, the poetry of Pindar, for example, his, his victory odes. And all of, the, all of these different sources between them put together a, a fairly full, fairly reliable picture of, of what of what was there? Yes, we have a huge array of evidence, all of which go into the um, the book that uh, that I reviewed, uh, Judy Berenger's Olympia. A lot of the evidence appears to the naked eye just to be blocks of stone, 
statue bases from which the statues have been removed, but they still bear the inscriptions showing what the statue was or who dedicated it. And those bases are sometimes immensely important for reconstructing historical events of which we have very faint records otherwise. That is, what dynasts had risen to power in what cities, who was vying for hegemony over whom, those kind of questions can often be answered simply by these inscriptions on surviving statue bases. And is that especially true that in the in the Hellenistic period, that I know that you've, you're writing about one of the many Demetriuses and you have and you've written about another one of the many Demetriuses in the LRB. So and trying to untangle that often quite complicated and history of and chaotic history of the Hellenistic period. Is this kind of evidence helpful for that? Yes, exactly so. Because this was such an important advertising venue, a place to see and be seen, the uh, great powers who followed in the wake of Alexander the Great, the successors as we call them, all tried to use Olympia as a way to uh, project their authority and their legitimacy. And this went on for centuries, the rivalry between the successors. So we can construct a lot of Hellenistic history thanks to the help of these inscriptions. I mean, this is sort of getting everything slightly back to front, I suppose. But the, 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 modern, the modern Olympic Games that were started in 1896, or whenever it was on a, on a 19th century idea of, of the ancient Greek model, but having sort of grown up with and living with the modern Olympic Games, we can sort of project back onto the ancient ones that m- maybe make them imagine that they're more familiar to us than they really are. I mean, I, I mean there are many other things like that as well, I suppose, that democracy, <laughs> democracy that we imagine ancient Ath- Athenian democracy and is like our um, modern democracies. Yes, indeed. Just to look at athletics, the kinds of events that went on at Olympia as compared with our Olympic Games and the rules governing events, uh, I think, are telling about the differences between Greek culture and our and our own. There were no team sports in antiquity. Uh, everything was individual competition, and the savagery of events like boxing and something called pancratiast competition, which is not unlike our extreme fighting, which has been banned from the modern Olympics because it was deemed to be too savage or too violent. But at the Olympics of of the Greek world, it was one of the primary events. We hear about a man whose nickname was the finger tipper because he won events by bending his opponent's fingers back so, uh, so far that uh, the pain became unbearable and their opponent would simply surrender. Um, <laughs> he won a, a long string of victories with that strategy. And uh, there were routine deaths resulting from pancratiast competition or from boxing, things that we wouldn't accept nowadays. And presumably in chariot racing as well, that chariots would crash. and Chariot racing also very hazardous and as seen in the myth of Pelops, the uh, efforts by one opponent to 
uh, wreck the other more notorious. So in some ways closer to Roman gladiatorial, I mean, without weapons, but you're still, you're watching two, two men trying to kill each other. Well, and, and without weapons is an important qualification, but uh, yes, there, uh, there's a level of, um, of violence there uh, that, um, that we find unacceptable today, at least in Olympic competition. Of course, you can watch extreme fighting, uh, you know, on cable TV, and uh, you can see, you know, strategies that approximate what, what the Greeks were accustomed to. But for some reason, we think that's unacceptable in a international venue. James Rom, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. You can read James Rom's piece on ancient Olympia in the current issue of the NRB, along with Hazel V. Carby on the 1619 Project, James Meek on Civil Wars, and Rosa Lister on Diamonds. The NRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunton.